You guys can grab a seat. You already knew that. You figured it out even when I didn't say that. Um, all right, we're in a summer sermon series called Under the Sun. It's a phrase from the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. It refers to just everything of life, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the stuff we understand or think we understand and all the stuff we don't understand. Under the sun, popular culture, biblical wisdom. We're looking at different parts of popular culture, music, movies, social media, and we're looking at some of the messages we hear and we're saying do the messages of our culture match with the messages of scripture. Last week I started, I'm going to talk just a little bit again about a major office, box office hit, uh, the new version of, or the, 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 the legacy sequel of Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. Oh, it's just, it was, so there's this scene. And the, the fighter planes have, we talked last week about how the, one of the big themes is speed, because who doesn't, I mean, you know. So there's this scene, and the fighter planes, they have to go really fast down this, they have to fly really fast, because that's what planes do, is they fly. And they have to go, but they have to do this moment where they have to go up over a mountain ridge, and it's in the trailer, so this isn't giving anything, they have to go up over a mountain ridge, and when they get to the top of the mountain, they flip upside down and go over the ridge. And it's one of these moments, especially when you're on the big screen in the theater, and you're just like, that's so awesome. But I was listening to an interview with an actual Top Gun instructor. And not just an instructor, but a senior instructor. And he was breaking down all the scenes of the movie. And he was like, okay, this part and that part, I mean, it's a movie, so we can give him grace. But he was talking about that scene where the fighter plane goes up over the mountain and flips upside down and goes over the ridge. And he says, actually, that right there, that is legit training for every fighter pilot ever. Because stick with me a second. If you, if you can imagine flying at whatever speed they're flying, and you just go up and just turn and go straight down, the G-force is pushing all of the blood up to your head. And when that much force pushes that much blood up to your head, you pass out every time. So in fact, if you are a fighter pilot and you're going up over a mountain ridge, you have to flip upside down so that the G-force pushes the blood down to your legs. And Carl Bruce was telling me about the special suits that you wear when you're doing this because he's done some of it. And I was like, that's so awesome. But the point of the story is you don't pass out. And the reason I bring up that scene is both because it's just fun to watch, but two, it comes to one of the climactic moments in the movie. And the whole point of, the whole, the whole crescendo of the plot line of Top Gun Maverick is that some bad guys have gotten some bad stuff, and they're going to do some bad things with that bad stuff. I'm not giving anything away, right? There are bad guys who got some bad stuff, and they're going to do some bad things with that bad stuff. And therefore, the best fighter pilots in the world are called in to go and fix that problem. In a sense, we've been talking last week and this week about the theme of justice. In a sense, the fighter pilots are called in because there's an injustice in the world, and they're going to come in and right that wrong. They're going to bring justice to a place of injustice. And like I said last week, I love action movies. I love the fighter planes. And I have great respect for the women and men who like those depicted in this fictitious movie, risk their lives for the good of others. But here's the problem I have. Movies like Top Gun, when they define justice 
And we could find other movies that go even more insane to this end. But when they define justice, oftentimes their definition is destroy the bad guy. There's a problem. There's bad guys with bad stuff doing bad things. What are you going to do to fix it? What you're going to do is you're going to destroy the bad guy. And once the bad guy is destroyed, you can fly into the sunset and the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy and it's a happy ending. You know, play the credits, nice music, our hearts are warmed, we go home smiling. But my question is, if much of the entertainment industry, and we could find counterexamples, so go with me here, it's for the sake of the sermon, you know, we can, we can suspend our disbelief sometimes, but if much of the entertainment industry defines justice as destroy the bad guy, I wanna ask, does the entertainment industry get it right? Do the movies we watch, the TV shows we watch, and their depiction of justice, do they get it right? Or to say it better, do they present an image that is faithful to how scripture defines justice? We looked last week at a really heavy passage, uh, Psalm 109, one of the psalms that's called an imprecatory psalm. And it was basically a prayer by an ancient king praying that God would bring harm and suffering upon his enemies. We talked about, why is this in the scripture? What do we do with that? And we said that what that psalm does is it reveals that when there's great evil in the world, it's right and good for us to feel angry about it, and it's right and good for us to reflect on our own contribution to some of the wrongdoing in the world. Interestingly, the landing point of Psalm 109 was, but God... I'm not expecting you to do what I want. I'm expecting you to do what is just. The landing point is that we believe it's God who is the source of all justice. So what I want to do today is I want to look at the word. Because this is going to come as a surprise to you, but in ancient Israel, nobody knew the word justice because they didn't speak English. Um, They spoke a different language. And sure enough, when we translate words from one language to another, sometimes the full meaning can get muddled, can get confused. And what we often do is we take our English language and our English words and our American ideas and we read them back into the text unknowingly. Not always, but sometimes. So today we're going to look at a text um, not from King David, but from King David's son, a guy named Solomon, who is considered one of the wisest men to have ever lived. And we're going to start with the very first chapter of his book of wisdom called the Proverbs. And we're going to read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. They're an introduction to Solomon's reason, his purpose, his hope for writing down this whole collection of Proverbs or wise sayings. So if you want to go there, Proverbs chapter 1, Starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For gaining wisdom and instruction. For understanding words of insight. For receiving instruction in prudent behavior. Doing what is right and just and fair. For giving prudence to those who are simple. Knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings of riddles of the wise. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Pray with me again. God, um, I think what Solomon wrote here is true not only of his Proverbs or of just wisdom and literature in general, but God, I believe this is true of your whole scripture, that you gave us your scripture to teach us, to show us, to challenge us, to reveal us what is good and right, fair and just behavior. As we've already prayed, God, would you open our hearts, not to my words, not to any of the words of the world around us, but God, open our hearts to your word, that from you we might gain wisdom. Amen. So in the middle there, it said, the Proverbs are written, and I'm suggesting uh, maybe all of Scripture, this is applicable to all of Scripture, the Proverbs and Scripture is given to us in order that we might receive instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right, just, and fair. Three words, right, just, and fair. One of the things you can do when you're studying Scripture is if you see a word that kind of jumps out of the page at you, maybe because somebody put it in bold on a big screen. Maybe that's why it jumps out of the page. Or maybe you're reading, right? You're reading scripture and you go, that word's really confusing to me. Or you go, wow, that word really speaks something meaningful to me. When you see a word jump out of the page at you, something you should do, I really recommend it. It's called doing a word study. And in its simplest form, you just take that word, go to any online Bible. I always use BibleGateway.com. Why do I use it? I don't know. It's just the one I've always used. I don't know if it's the best but it's the one I've used. And if you literally just go to an online Bible, type in the word into the search box, and it's going to spit out every instance of that word throughout all of Scripture. And what you do is then you just start at the beginning, and you read through it, and you go, oh, interesting. It's used in this way here, but then it's used in kind of a different way here. And wow, the meaning kind of has this feel to it here, but it kind of has a different feel to it there. And when you do a word study like this, see how a word is used throughout Scripture, it helps increase the significance, the meaning, the understanding of how that word is used in any particular place. So I want to do a little word study with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to briefly go through two of the words, but I, I want to really focus on the word here, just. And if you really want to get into it, you can figure out the Hebrew word and do a Hebrew word word study, but it works in English just great as well. But we're going to have some Hebrew. If you walk away with any Hebrew questions, Go talk to Julie Dykes. She's the Hebrew scholar in the room. Um, I'm happy to talk to you too, but she knows way more than I do. Uh, so here we go. Three words, right, just, and fair. First Hebrew word, yashar. It's the third one that gets translated as fair. It can mean smooth, even, level, or straight. Yashar is the opposite of crooked, both physically and morally. It's, in a sense, that third word, fair, it's, it's kind of meant to be a word picture. What are we talking about when we're talking about justice or rightness? We're talking about things that are straight, about staying on the straight and narrow. The, the proverb ends with this word picture. Second one, I said these first two quickly, sedek. Everybody say sedek. Yeah. Uh, it can mean right or rightness or righteousness. It probably most often gets translated as righteousness. It's a relational word. It has to do with right relationship with other people. 
our right relationship with God, our right relationship with one another, our right relationship with the whole of creation. It gets used often in many different ways, um, but especially a lot of the prophets talk about it. Here's one example, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right, seek tzedek, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, this part of Isaiah is actually a poem. And in ancient Hebrew poetry, one of the most common structures was the couplet. Two lines, side by side. And whenever you have a couplet, both lines say the same thing. This was an oral culture. Nobody had the scroll. Nobody had a Bible that was indexed like ours. The only way they knew scripture was somebody else read it to them and they memorized it. And the couplet was a tool for making memorization easy. So according to Isaiah, Sedek, righteousness or rightness, is the same thing as defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow. We have a phrase in English that actually captures it pretty well. I think we could almost call it a, a paraphrase of Sedek. We might say, oh, they've done right by me. We don't use it as much in modern English, but like, you can, oh, that person, yeah, they're right by me, they're good by me. As far as they and I are concerned, we are right with one another. So we've got a word picture, straight or smooth. We've got a relational picture, righteousness, Sadek. Now I want to spend the rest of the time on this third word, justice. But like I said, we've got English, but it comes from the Hebrew, so let's just do a little, a little thought experiment. Um, when you hear the English word justice, what comes to your mind? Just think for a second. What, what stories, uh, what contexts, what ideas, what comes to your mind when you hear the word justice? You might think of the law courts or judges. You might think of laws. You might think of that whole sphere of reality. You might think of what we just read in scripture, this idea of caring for or defending the cause of somebody who's been weak, you know, who is weak or has been mistreated. What comes to your mind when you hear the word justice? And what we're gonna do now is I just want you to, whatever that image is, whatever that idea or definition is, hold that in the back of your mind. We're gonna look at a few examples of places in scripture that the Hebrew word gets used. And we're just gonna ask ourselves, what comes to my mind when I say the English word justice, is that the same? Is that different than what the author of scripture has in their mind when they use the Hebrew word? Good, are we, you guys can, that's, I'm asking you to do two things at once. Keep the English in your mind and think about the Hebrew, but I think we can do this. Okay, so the Hebrew word mishpat, everybody say mishpat. Uh, the most basic definition, judgment, justice, or ordinance. It can talk about the time, place, and persons of judgment, literally the courtroom, and the judge, and the law. It can be an attribute. God or humans can be just people. It can be a moral attribute. It can talk about behavior. Right behavior is called mishpat. And it can talk about our rights, the things that we owe, whether legally or morally, that, that, that are owed to us, that are our 
rights. So right off the bat, mishpat often gets translated as justice in English. Mishpat, it's got a big range of different meanings. Shows up over 400 times in the Old Testament, which as comparison, if you take the word chesed, which gets translated as love, if you take the word that gets translated as compassion that I'm forgetting right now, if you take love and compassion, both put them together, they only get used a little over 300 times. Mishpat, over 400, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. It is a huge, critical, central word. And what I want to do is look at all 400 examples with you this morning, but instead I'll look at three, because as we know, that is the magic number of examples to look at in a sermon. First one, uh, Mishpat, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is called, is the last book of law in the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible are often known as the law. And so we're going to get a legal use of Mishpat, Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. When people have a dispute, they are to take it to the court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. But the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. Whew! All right, uh, the word for judge there is mishpat. And the whole context, the judge, the, the law that they broke, and the consequence of the court crime, all of that is an expression of mishpat. It's maybe, in my mind, what might most commonly come to mind when I hear the English word justice. I think about this type of identifying wrongdoing, identifying the consequences of it, and administering appropriate consequences for wrong doing. So meaning number one of mishpat, mishpat is determining and administering consequences for wrong doing. And it can be used, like I said, for many different aspects of that whole thing. But then the word shows up in some other really interesting ways. It actually gets foreshadowed in Deuteronomy because that law says, okay, you got to lash them. And apparently back then, you did it right there in front of the judge. So that's, I mean, that was, that's crazy. That's different. Um, but then it, it, it ended with, but you cannot go more than 40. It said you have to administer justice, but there was constraints upon what that looked like. And those constraints, I think, sort of foreshadow the next meaning. This one comes uh, from the prophets, the prophet Zechariah. If you want to go there, chapter 7. And the prophets talk all the time about Mishpat. And specifically, the prophets often spoke critique against the nation of Israel, saying, Israel, I think you've forgotten what God really meant. And the prophets would call Israel back to God's purposes. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8 says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true mishpat. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. 
do not plot evil against one another. So at first, mishpat is crime and punishment. But here, mishpat is compassion and mercy. And what we find here is a quartet that often is linked right next to all biblical understandings of mishpat. It's sometimes called the quartet of the vulnerable, the foreigner, immigrants or refugees, the fatherless, an orphan, the widow who has lost her husband, and the poor or the oppressed. Interesting thing about this quartet, travel with me back to ancient Israel for just a second. Close your eyes, in your mind. Okay, we're back there. It was a land-based, patriarchal society, meaning that pretty much all wealth and income was tied to land ownership, and land ownership only occurred among men. So if your father died, you no longer had access to land ownership. If your husband died, you no longer had access to the means of providing for yourself. If you were an immigrant or a refugee, you were not immediately included in land ownership. And when people act unjustly, spoiler alert, um, humans act unjustly pretty often. Not sure if we've, um, what happens is a, a system designed to bring care to all people equitably can get perverted, can get manipulated, so that some people amass too much wealth and the poor become oppressed and become forcibly kept out of that. And so this quartet, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the oppressed, becomes a reference to the opposite of mishpat. And whereas our first definition, mishpat, is determining and administering consequences, whereas that most certainly is there. We can find so many scriptures where that's there, and that's a big deal. It's also an inadequate understanding because mishpat is also coming to the aid of those who are disadvantaged. I honestly think our English word charity might be an excellent definition of this aspect of the Hebrew word mishpat. We see this in all sorts of places in scripture, uh, sort of echoes of it. Um, one that I saw this idea of, it's not just making sure there's consequences for wrongdoing, but it's also using what you've got to pursue good for others. Um, another one of the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 31, verses eight and nine, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I mentioned a resource that I just love. I've, I've used it a lot and they're getting only better and better. It's an organization called The Bible Project. Um, and they create short, just awesome educational videos about all sorts of biblical themes. They do short uh, summaries of entire books of the Bible, and then they do educational series on different themes. And they've got some amazing content on justice. If you go to thebibleproject.com and just search justice, you'll get a video and you'll get three or four podcasts that talk about it. But when they were talking about this idea, interestingly, they said this aspect of mishpat, coming to the aid of those who are disadvantaged, um, here's how they defined it. Justice, mishpat, 
means noticing another's problems and making them your own. Quite frankly, something that in my American sensibility feels a little off. But that's precisely what we see God commanding his people to do time and time again throughout Scripture. Unless we find ourselves going, God, that just feels like, woo, there's a lot of problems out there. Like, woo, really? I see all these problems out there. I'm going to put them on my own shoulders. Lest we be overwhelmed, we remember that the reason that's what God calls us to is because that's who God says he is. Psalm 146 says, The Lord God upholds mishpat for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. All of this is not just God saying, hey, this is what I think you guys should do, but this is God saying, this is who I am, and if you're made in my image, this is what you were created to do. Okay, Ms. Pot, determining and administering consequences for wrongdoing, constraining evil. Ms. Pot, coming to the aid of the most vulnerable. Now, the third example um, that I'm going to read, the word itself doesn't show up in here, but it comes from a chunk of Leviticus that is just filled with line after line after line after line of law. Just happy morning devotional reading. It defines, like, how many lashes should you get if you steal a grapevine from your neighbor or if your neighbor's ox falls in a pit on your property? How do you decide who gets what about the ox? Stuff that I worry about daily. Like, I dug a pit in my backyard the other day and I thought, what if somebody's ox falls in it? Now I know. But we're going to read um, one of a set of laws called the gleaning laws. It talks about how to behave justly at harvest time, which again, if you live in an agrarian society where pretty much all the livelihood of the whole society is based on land ownership and either harvesting the crops you grow or harvesting the animals that you care for, this is a big deal. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Okay, I don't know about you, but I've never harvested. Okay, I've got a small garden. But I don't think that, I've never harvested quite on this level before, so I just want to kind of paint the picture. Let's say you have an olive orchard, because you're a very successful ancient Israel person, obviously, so you've got a nice olive orchard. It's harvest time. So here's what you do. You put a big net on the ground around the olive tree, and you get a big stick with kind of almost like a, a paddle on the end, and you literally walk around the tree, and you beat the branches. I can imagine it being hard work. And the fruit of the tree, the olives, if they're ripe, when you beat the branches, they fall down into the net. And then you gather up the net and you bring it to the olive press 
and you make some olive oil, and then you make some hummus, and then you dip your pita bread in it, or you sell it to your neighbor, and you're very, very happy because olive oil is so delicious. Now, if your goal in life is to maximize profits, as you know, not all fruit of a plant ripens at the same rate. So if your goal is to maximize profit, you do all that, and then you wait a couple days or maybe a week, and then you come back a second time because there's still more olives on that tree. And this is my land, and this is my orchard, and this is my tree, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get the rest of the olives. But Mishpat says, actually, those olives are not yours. They belong to the foreigner, to the fatherless, to the widow. And there was a legal requirement for me to let other people, vulnerable people, come onto my land and gather the edge of the wheat crop or gather the second gleaning of the olives or gather the second gleaning of the grapes on the vine. Why? Because God is the Lord, your God. That is why. So at first we said, Ms. Pot, understandably, determining and administering consequences. Second, Mishpat is coming to the aid of those who are disadvantaged. But it goes even further, and Scripture says Mishpat is creating systems, laws, that govern an entire society that benefit the most vulnerable among us. And we see this time and time and time again throughout Scripture. References, challenges to Israel to do things like to create fair laws, to ensure fair trade. We get the image oftentimes in scripture of fair scales because we know if I'm the one who owns the market and own the scale, I can make this one a little heavier so that when you come to sell your produce, ooh, it tips in my favor just a little bit. There's actually a requirement in the Old Testament every seven years in the nation of Israel, all debts canceled. And if that, if that wasn't compassionate enough, the year of Jubilee, every 49 years, all land goes back to its ancestral owners. So that people who have maybe been tripped up for any number of reasons over the last generation and have lost access to their land, whether through debt or they had to sell it for some reason, they're brought back into that land ownership system. There's some debate about to what extent Israel did or did not faithfully do these laws that were on their books, but they were undoubtedly on the books. And the prophet spoke to Israel often saying, you've been told what God's justice is. It's time to do it. But here's the most beautiful thing that I see when I read this theme of mishpat throughout the Old Testament. Like so many things in God's word from beginning to end, uh, it points towards God's ultimate revelation of himself. The person of Jesus Christ coming down to earth to be with us. Mishpat anticipates and it reveals the gospel. Because it turns out God looked down at us, his creation, his beloved good creation, and he saw the wrongdoing. My wrongdoing, your wrongdoing, our wrongdoing. 
And he saw the inevitable consequences on our shoulders. And he saw our problem, and he decided to make it his problem. He didn't stay back and say, hey, you got what's coming to you. He came down, and he took the inevitable consequences, the sickness and the stain and the brokenness of our sin, and he took it on his shoulders. Though it was not his problem to solve because he had not committed any wrongdoing. And as if that wasn't enough, taking the humility of a human form, God himself in flesh, he decided to help us by wiping away the consequences of our sin and then guaranteeing that as we continued to try to live faithfully in this world, he would be with us always. You could say he not only made our problem his problem, he not only came to our aid, but he created a system directly designed to help us in our weakness. His Holy Spirit in us and among us. His church made by him, called by him to bring his mishpat, to reveal his gospel to this hurting world. And when we think about what God has done for us, we invariably have to ask, what's my move? What's your move going to be? I was watching, um, <laughs> a little confession here, I was watching the uh, candidates tournament, the chess tournament that earns you the right to compete for the title of world champion. Some of these games take like 12 hours. Literally, when you, when you watch a high-level game of chess and there's hours on the clock, what you'll see is somebody will make a move and then the opponent will sit there and stare at the board, but while I just made my move, literally the players will get up and they'll just walk around. They'll go back to their room. Actually, they can't, you know, they can't go get on a computer, but they'll, they'll go, go to the bathroom, they'll go get a drink of water. And the whole time, they'll leave the chessboard because they'll just be sitting there going like, I need to get my heart and my mind ready for what my next move is going to be. When you look at your life, when you look at the way you spend your time and your money, you give your skills and your abilities, how often do you ask yourself, how does this, how does this life of mine, how does this resource of mine, how does this talent of mine, how does this time of mine, how does my checkbook or how does my calendar, how does this accomplish mishpat? Is my life echoing the good news of God's love for this world. We just prayed a commissioning service and mentioned a number of people, and we could mention many, many more, who have heard God's call and said, I'm gonna go and train pastors who minister in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. I'm gonna go and provide resources for people who have almost nothing economically in their lives. I'm gonna go to another country and help build up an indigenous church there. What about you? What about your life? I certainly can't help but think about when we hear the word justice, often the political reality of the world we live in comes to mind. When we think about the vote we cast for candidates or for laws on the books, what would it be like if first 
we read through all 400 of these verses in Scripture and said, how do I vote so that God's mishpat, the foreshadow of the gospel, is revealed in this world? The prophet Jeremiah makes the challenge this way. This is what the Lord says. Do not let the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, their God, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. Would you pray with me? God, I just acknowledge, um, when we read your word, when we see the theme of how you have instructed uh, and challenged and taught your people to live, and, and when it sinks in, God, I'll just, I'll just acknowledge it. It is weighty. We live in a complicated and in a broken and in a fractured, divided world that, I mean, I can't pretend to, to, to think that a right understanding of your word would suddenly erase all the differences of opinion around us. But I also, I just can't shake the hope that God, it is still you, present and at work in your church, and in each of our lives, and that in your compassion and mercy, your righteousness and your justice, you are continuing to make the beauty of your kingdom known through the mess of the lives of your people, living one step at a time, faithfully following you. Give us a heart for justice, I pray, according to your word. And all God's people said, amen.